What number is this, Jim? Episode 89, the Infinite Tuesday Book Talk, Mysterious Photos of Shoe Suede Blues, and more. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I know. Zilch. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. familiar music you are back in the world of zilch i'm your host today sarah clark and joining me is my great friend fellow podcaster monkey magic author melanie mitchell hello so what have you been up to on getting ready to record new things for zilch lately i've seen some interesting rumblings oh that was that was because i didn't have anything for lunch sorry oh um, yeah <laughs> No, uh, Jeff Hewlett and I have recorded another color cast commentary, and uh, I'm not sure how long it'll take to to get into the podcast, but it's recorded. And in the process of doing research for that color cast commentary, I discovered a mistake in my book. Oh, my goodness. Time to break out the liquid paper again. (laughs) Yeah, Right, so it's a minor thing, but it fascinated me when I realized that I had completely misinterpreted something I saw on the screen. Okay, so stay tuned. Oh, okay. So you're gonna leave you're gonna leave your fact checker in suspense, are you? I'll tell you later. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> it's been a little bit of a lull in Zilchland. Mickey's solo tour is continuing to do well, but one of the really neat things that is started to happen as we've crept into the month of May is we've been starting to see lots of posts about it being the first anniversary of various good times milestones. The release of You Bring the Summer came up the other day and several people shared it out on the on the Zilch Facebook group and we all kind of shared our memories of those long ago times of, you know, 2016. So and <laughs> it's it's amazing, really, that album and that whole that whole time. I, I mean, I lived it. I was a big part of it. And I look back now and I'm like, did I dream that? Did that happen? It was magical. Yeah. Absolutely. It, if if anything in this world is monkey magic, aside from your book, that was monkey magic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been really neat. Just, you know, everybody's just hanging out and chilling and having a good time talking about all the stuff we talk about on the zilch facebook group and we're kind of relaxing getting ready for more shows over the summer and our friends over on the peter torque facebook page are you know also having some good times and and they posted something kind of interesting what's up what's going on over there well, if you've heard the interviews that Peter had been giving in advance of his Wizard World convention appearances, you may have heard him drop some hints about some recordings he's doing with Shoe Suede Blues for a new CD. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, there were even hints that this new CD was going to be featuring the music of Lead Belly. Yeah. 
But today we actually got photographic evidence of the band working on the recordings. And it was Joe and Sturgis and AJ all together. Oh, it was such a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. Oh, it, it makes any Shoe Suede Blues fan so happy to see those guys together and start thinking about lovely music that will be coming soon, I hope. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. And I'm sure that as they are ready to drop more information, they will do so for us. So we're looking forward to that. And if uh, anything new comes up, we will let you guys know about it as well. But today on Zilch, we're actually going to be focusing once again on Infinite Tuesday. But rather than focusing on Nez's talk that he did in Los Angeles, we're finally going to talk about the actual book. And I was able to get together this really cool panel of kind of some of my favorite monkeys nerds and i mean that in the best way humanly possible to talk about infinite tuesday and kind of take a deep dive into the book the themes the things nez talked about the things nez didn't talk about the style of the book the structure the writing process all that good stuff and uh roseanne welch joined me the author of why the monkeys matter as well as our dear friend and voice of zilch ghosty timmers and then a first-time guest who i think you guys are really gonna like his name is andrew vaughn he's actually a rock biographer and he came to my attention because he wrote that really good review of infinite tuesday that was on gibson.com it was on the zilch facebook group as well and it got a lot of positive remarks which it should and we'll link to it in the show notes as well and uh, I contacted him and asked if he would be interested in being on the show and he was very interested and I think he added a lot so I think unless we have any other business to discuss we will go ahead and listen to all these wonderful people talk about the amazing world of Nez and the amazing world of Infinite Tuesday I can't wait Well, having been refused to be defined by what I am not, and now in the middle of the election year, this is a song called I Am Not That. I am not a poet. I cannot make a rhyme. I do not know the big words like spritz and paradigm. I am not an artist. I could not paint my house. I cannot chisel marble. I do not twist and shout. I am not a Yankee. I have no nation state, no cosmic star connection. I cannot get a date. I'm not a crook. I am not a thief. To be for me is not to be, not to see, to see. Goodbye, goodbye, the I am world. Goodbye, goodbye, so long. Farewell, adieu, adieu, farewell. I have not sung this song. It's been the talk of the internet the last few weeks, and now it's time to talk about it on Zilch. 
Infinite Tuesday is the newest book from Michael Nesmith, a memoir that explores the most important people, places, and events of his life in a series of what he calls autobiographical riffs. As usual, Nez has written a very thoughtful and meaty work about his life and his art, and I thought it would be really neat to get a group of thoughtful people together on the show to share their thoughts about Infinite Tuesday. First, I'd like to introduce the author of Why the Monkey's Manor, Dr. Roseanne Welch. It's great to have you back. Always fun to talk to you, Sarah. Aww. And next up, we have DJ, voiceover artist, music expert, and the coiner of the phrase Year of the Monkeys 2, Electric Boogaloo, Ghosty Timbers. <laughs> Can I do my Mike Nesmith impersonation I've been working on? Oh, good Lord, please. Here it comes. Well, the book is called Infinite Tuesday, and I'm Sarah, I'm happy to be here. That's it. That's my impersonation. <laughs> Excellent. That's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> and finally, we are joined by first-time guest and longtime Zilch listener, Andrew Vaughn. Andrew is an editor at Gibson.com and is a music writer, having, writ having written biographies of Garth Brooks, Shania Twain, and the Eagles, among other big names in country, rock, and country rock. As a music <laughs> critic, his work has appeared in Billboard, Music Week, Mojo, Q, The London Times, The Guardian, Guitar Magazine, Folk Roots, and many other publications. He was founding editor of Country Music International Magazine and a regular guest on BBC Radio, BBC TV, and VH1 as an expert on country rock. Welcome to Zilch, Andrew. Well, thank you. That was quite the introduction, wasn't it? Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> well, you're quite the journalist. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm, I appreciate it. Yeah, wonderful. So I thought I'd start by asking all of you, and then I'll kind of chime in uh, at the end. How much did you know about Nez's non-monkey's life and career before you sat down to read Infinite, uh, Infinite Tuesday? Now, Roseanne, we can start with you if you want. To be honest, I didn't know a ton because I am a well-announced Mickey girl, so I can give you day and verse and, and time of all the Mickey stuff that I can possibly think of. <laughs> um, so I didn't know Nez's like that. Well, of course, I knew Elephant Parts. I knew Rio vaguely. Mm -hmm. I hadn't followed his music work. Uh, if you want deep, dark honesty, I had always kind of blamed him for not keeping the band together. Mm. So I had not been as interested as I might have been in the earlier days. Ah, interesting. Uh, Ghosty, how about you? Well, with the exception of television parts, which I remember watching when it aired, uh, and it was funny because I didn't really put two and two together and realize this was the same Michael Nesmith who was in the monkeys. I just <laughs> thought it was a comedian who came along in the 80s. Uh, my knowledge of what Nez has been up to post-monkeys or pre-monkeys uh, goes down to, you know, the highlights on a Wikipedia page, really. I mean, I knew his, I knew his mother invented liquid paper. I knew, uh, you know, he started the first national band. He went solo. I knew he had a record called The Prison. I'd heard some of that music. Mm -hmm. But in terms of his life and what's important I think one of the things that are, that's important for this book, his spiritual life, I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so very little. You yeah. know, yeah, getting into that was really 
really eye-opening. And, you know, the relationship with his mother. I knew that she invented liquid paper, but I didn't, I, you know, I, I thought she was like June Cleaver or something. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So this was eye-opening in a lot of ways, this book. Wow. Wow. How about you, Andrew? I know you're coming from a slightly different position. Yeah, I, I'm coming from a, a very different position, actually. Growing up in England, um, when I did, I was getting into music in the mid to late 70s. And his, his uh, Nesmith's profile in England at that period was actually quite strong because of the very well-received re- uh, Roundhouse concert in 1974-5. I'm not sure what year it was. I think it was 74. And then he had a little bit of a UK renaissance and uh, had Rio in 76, 77. So that was all happening like on the music scene here as I was a teen getting into music. So it was very current. It was very of the time. So I kind of knew about what he was doing as a ex-monkey. I, I knew more about him than the monkeys at that point. Mm-hmm. And then and then my other, I have to say, you know, just so for the conversation that in, I think it was 1989, <clears throat> he brought out an album called The Newest Stuff. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine in England did the the UK release. I think it, actually he put the whole thing together over in England. And he asked me to do the publicity for the campaign. So I had to read up and fill in the gaps because I was about to be publicizing the uh, Michael Nesmith's new album, um, which is when I first uh, talked to him back in 89, I guess. Right. So I already had, I was already quite familiar with him. And then I had to really understand his work in order to talk to the press and the media about him. So I probably know more about his career than I do the the monkeys, um, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So we have a perfect round robin of different attitudes. Exactly. <laughs> and and yeah. I I would put myself sort of between Andrew and and you and Ghosty uh, Roseanne because. I had always been kind of intrigued by him. We had come from kind of similar backgrounds. I'm sort of from the same area of the country. I'm from Oklahoma as opposed to Texas. I knew that he had been raised by a single mom. My dad had been partially raised by a single mom. And and it just, there were a lot of parallels that I knew about kind of when I was a kid and first getting into the monkeys like a lot of us, a lot of us did when we were younger. And then I returned to his work in the 90s when I was uh, in my late teens. I was actually living in the UK at the time. And this was like around the time of the Justice album. And I discovered the first drafts of the book he was writing online that eventually became the Long Sandy Hair of Neptune Zamora. There was a lot of autobiographical stuff in that book, especially in the early drafts that didn't make it to the final version. And I was just totally fascinated by his life. I mean, you know, he shared little glimpses of kind of things we learned more about later on in Infinite Tuesday. And that was at the point where I started buying up basically every solo album I could get my hands on. It was, uh, it's one of those strange quirks of history that um, Nez's solo work almost is better known in the UK than his monkey's work. And I was able to buy up most of his CDs just, you know, in, in, in Dundee and, and, and kind of became a, became a really Nez head and a, a fan aside from, you know, his, his earlier work aside from that too. So I guess I'm sort of kind of in the middle. I think we've all noticed, those of us who are Monkeys fans and have been following the story of the Monkeys the last few years, that Neza seemed to open up a lot more in the last five years or so. He seems to be sharing a bit more of himself on Facebook and things like that. But 
in general, he's always struck me as a pretty private person. What do you all think about his decision to write such a open and vulnerable bio- autobiography at this point in his life? I was just, you know, I'm glad he wrote it at this time in his life uh-huh. because I read Davy's book. Uh, they made a monkey out of me. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, Davy's book was about cracking jokes and, you know, he had some scores to settle in that mm-hmm. book. Mickey's book, he had a score to settle with Davy in that book. <laughs> um, and it was sort of your typical celebrity autobiography, which, you know, he has this collaborator who hits all the highlights and tells the story in, you know, more or less chronological order. And this is a very, very different book. And I think it's the kind of book that could only be written by someone at the age Nez is at right now. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been, you're right, in the past five years in a very reflective mode, very accepting of his monkey's past. Yeah. In a way that I don't want to say he turned his back on his monkey's past. I kind of think he was just busy with other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets misinterpreted that, you know, he really wanted nothing to do with the monkeys. I think that in reading about the various relationships at that time, I think that he, and we'll get into this later, I think he had, based on this book, more of a relationship with Bert and Bob yeah. than he did with the other three monkeys. They were more or less co-workers, and that's fine and to be expected, and a lot of bands are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, I don't know if you want to get into this now, but Nez at this age, reading this book and just how he's been in various interviews, he's reminding me of late period Orson Welles. <laughs> and when I say this, it's because Orson Welles, for years... For decades, had this reputation as a very difficult guy, a guy that was impossible to know, a, a perfectionist who would leave, you know, underlings and hangers on, you know, uh, crumbling. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would cut a swath through, you know, Hollywood, and you know, very difficult to get along to. And then, in later years, people would say, boy, you know, he's really put a different spin on this. Now he talks about, well, I may have seemed this way at the time because I really didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) You know, I was sort of confused. I was along for the ride and hoping this was going to work out. And maybe it seemed at the time that I was being very difficult, but I I was kind of scared. And I can relate to that. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. there are there are different ways people can be perceived. It's happened to me where I found out that someone thought I was very difficult or, you know, not, not someone you can Mm -hmm. approach. And that always struck me because I think, boy, I'm not that way at all. (laughs) Why would someone think that I'm not um, a a difficult, at least I don't think I am. I don't try to be. Mm -hmm. And yet someone had that perception. And I think, that sometimes happens with Nez. Yeah. Andrew, do you have any thoughts? I look at it quite differently than, than the ghosty on that one because I think that he seems 
very open right now because he's talking about things that he wants to talk about. I think that he's always been open, mm -hmm. but no one ever asked him questions about anything apart from the obvious right. three questions he always gets right. in every interview. So it always comes across as he's like, oh, gosh, okay, well, you know, yes, she invented liquid paper and, yeah. So that, that that comes across a reluctance to talk. Mm -hmm. I think I think that if they were if they then had been asking him about Paul Seeley or about Christian Science or about his first wife, they may have got more interesting answers. They may have got him to come out of his shell a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I, I think kind of it was always there. I remember when I first called him up in '89 for the publicity project, and you have to ask artists this question: you know, is there anything you don't want to talk about? And he said, no, I'll talk about anything apart from my favourite colour, which was, you know, obviously a response to being asked stupid questions mm -hmm. as a pop star. But he really was happy to talk about anything. And I think that what he's able to do now in this book is talk about everything he likes to talk about and that's interesting to him. And people are thinking, oh, my gosh, he's got so much to talk about. He's being so open. I think really it's just that he's never had the opportunity for anyone to listen to him before in the media yeah. anyway. <laughs> That would be my take on it. You know, can I follow up on that? Because Go I've, for been, it. I've sure. been listening to various interviews with Michael, at, 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 you know, different radio stations, uh -huh. outlets. And it's funny. Here we are talking about all the things that are in this book. But listening to some of these interviews, it's, Mike, what's your favorite monkey song? Is <sighs> it true that your mother invented yeah. the paper? And, and Jimi Hendrix opened for the monkeys? And he's got to go through those same three bullet points over and over and over again. And I wouldn't be surprised if he clammed up after this. I was going to say, this is the reason, and this is going to sound like I'm brown nosing, but I'm not. This is the reason podcasting and a chance through something like Zilch, but for many other fans of many other things, provides a place where the deeper conversations can happen. I think that's what fans want to hear more of, obviously, but your average news programs are going to hit the highlights. They're, they're given a moment and that's it, yep. um, which is a waste of time, obviously. And I think that, but that's true of all of them. You know, I think Mickey is tired of talking about the very same things he's always been asked as I'm sure Davey eventually was tired of. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. a beautiful moment in um, Nesmith's life that he has reached an age and being considered the intellectual one, which I found interesting. He said he didn't think of himself as the smartest or even the best musical player. That was right. a nice conceit of his. Mm -hmm. um, he is now having this opportunity. I also think that the book in the end turns out to be the story of a writer finding yes. his voice. And he didn't trust in the very beginning that he was a writer. He allowed himself to fall into the traps of celebrity, the traps of cute boy, the traps of mm -hmm. actor. He... None of those things were what he should have been doing. And because he did them, he wasted time he could have spent on deeper writing. He came of age in a time when this kind of reflective writing was very popular. He mentions Timothy Leary, of course, and the other folks in the day. He could have fallen into that world, but he, he let the fame and the fancy stuff waylay him. And mm -hmm. I think he's regretting that and trying to make up for it. Yeah, I think all of you kind of capture capture pieces of it. And I, I think Andrew hit on an important point about just because of the nature of how most publicity junkets work of all of them, you know, especially, you know, especially Nez in this case, kind of getting asked the same three or four questions over and over by 25 different local radio hosts. <laughs> and 
you know, that was something I know that when we had the amazing opportunity to have Peter on Zilch, we were very, you know, we knew from ground one that this was not going to be a typical monkey interview and we did not ask any of the typical questions. And and it was a very wonderful experience for that. So it was, it was, and it was for him as well, because just like was recently said, he wants the chance to tell you who he really is. And yeah. you gave him that opportunity. Yeah. And, and I think that coming back to the book, that to Infinite Tuesday and Nez, that's really what is going on with this book is he's, he's able to tell us who he is and not be, not having to be through the lens of, you know, the standard, the, the standard media interview that, that, that he has to deal with. So the template. So, yeah. so Michael, Michael, if you're listening, <laughs> um, you can, you have an invitation, of course, to come on Zilch and talk about the comedy of Buster Keaton or, you know, <laughs> whatever you want to yeah. talk about. Yeah, I have to say just just again, I, I don't want to hog this uh, discussion, no, go ahead. but, you know, I'm I'm in that position, too, on radio where you get the 10 minutes with someone, you know, yeah, yeah. and you have to, you know, I always think to myself, boy, the conversation I want to have is really the one I can't. Because mm -hmm. I also have to think of the audience, and I know that at the end of the interview, someone's going to say, "You didn't ask him about liquid paper." Yeah, you know, and that's but that's like, go look at Wikipedia, too. right? Now, so that so that is you know the something that a podcast can do that yes. a, you know a, a ten minute phoner can't. Yeah, this although is very true, I'm going to argue from the standpoint of the world now living in YouTube that all interviewers in all mediums are going to have to start thinking about the things that haven't been said, because otherwise you can go to YouTube and find a thousand clips that answer that question. Yeah. The job yeah. of a real interviewer is to go deeper and ask that thing that will become the one clip where the person gets to say those things. So I think that we're, we're letting folks get trapped in a rut that they shouldn't be trapped in in the new media world. But that's mm -hmm. another conversation. That is another conversation. It's it's a fun one, but uh, not for today. But coming back to Infinite Tuesday, um, Ness described the book as a series of autobiographical riffs, as he puts it. But there's also it's also pretty chronological. There's a definite through line to the book, with the exception of kind of an anecdote here or there. He kind of moves around to you know make whatever point he's trying to make. What do you all think of the structure of this book and, and how do you think that structure shaped the story? And I guess we can um, start with uh, one, uh, with our um, rock star biographer, uh, Andrew, on this one. I, I don't know this for a fact. My, I have a feeling. It's just a theory. I think the structure would have been more haphazard. Uh, without without the uh, random house editor getting involved, I've got a feeling that they. I have a feeling they structured it a little bit more chronologically. I don't know that. I just have a feeling they did because, you know, one thing you do know about Nez is that he's not going to do it the normal way. Oh, good lord, no! He's, he's gonna he's gonna do it how he feels it works. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact he's talked a lot about the riff element in interviews that there probably was a little bit more backwards and forwards, upside down in the original manuscript. Mm -hmm. But I think it works. I think it works as a regular biography, which isn't what he wanted originally. Because if you hear him talking about it before it came out, he made it clear it wasn't a regular biography. Right. Uh, but it came out as one pretty much. I mean, it's pretty much straight through his life. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a feeling that was probably put together after he did this, his first draft. I don't know that. 
Um, I still think it works really well, and you know he's able to he's able to use the riff element to um, avoid having to get into too much detail and facts, which I think is good for him because he can talk about an event or a story as he recalls it mm-hmm. um, rather than having to, you know, it was a Wednesday and it, it was a three o'clock and there were three guys there whose names I forget. He's avoided that by talking about how he remembers something that happens. It's not a definitive account by any means of anything that happened over the last 50 years because he doesn't try and do that. But I still think it works kind of as a history, but just a very kind of um, loose remembrance of events, but not loose in the sense of, his memory not being accurate, but loose in the sense of it's not tied to fact after fact after fact. It's not like the Andrew Sandoval book where it's, you know, right. literally like a journal of what happened. It's not mm-hmm. like that at all. And I, I like it for that. I, I think oh, it yeah. works. You're kind of impressionist. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah definitely. In, in its way. Yeah. Yeah. In, the, in the long run, what I think we're describing is he's, he is telling the life, but he's telling the life in context of the era. And yes. that yes. is yes. what exactly makes right. it exactly above right. and beyond. And I think that's what's interesting because now we're getting a lot of books about that period. Those types of moments where we can sense what it was like to be part of an era, those mm-hmm. are more interesting. That's what Ghosty said before. Poor Davy and Mickey were given the chance to write books that were merely, here's what I did, and it was only thought they would sell to Monkeys fans. Yeah. Now that the right. Monkeys fandom has expanded across generations and there's a little more respect getting the publishers recognize there might be a larger audience there's a business audience for nez there's a southern audience a texan audience mm-hmm. and, um, so i think they allowed him to go to those places i would personally love to see mickey given the same chance these days because he has an equal um ability to reflect on an era when you sit him down for quiet time yeah yeah, and and he really brings a lot of kind of that, in one a way reflective, but also I mean like that story with Johnny Cash. You feel like you're up on that rooftop. Yes, oh yeah. He's, he's just got that ability to set a scene. The other thing that this book seems to be more of chronologically, it's not a chronology of a life. It's a chronology of the conversations of a life. Ooh, that's what he remembers about people. What yeah. he talked about with them. I was just going to say, I remember when he was on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast, mm-hmm. and he didn't go into detail, but I remember him saying something, well, it's about the spirit of the 60s uh, going into Silicon Valley, or however he described it. Yeah. And I remember walking into the bookstore on the day of release, and I see the cover, and there's all these Warhol-like you know, drawings of monkeys, and I'm thinking, oh, God, what am I getting myself <laughs> into here? And I was surprised that it did read like a, a very thoughtful but straightforward autobiography. Yeah. Yeah, very true. And the last thing I'll say about structure is I love a book that uses quotes to open every chapter. Yes. I yes. love I love the um the quote before the chapter about losing his mother about the void that mm-hmm. comes at Ulysses the void that we all have to face. I thought that was that told me in a quote how lost he was when he lost her and that really emotionally connected me to the book yeah and roseanne mentioned the bob dylan book chronicles volume one i believe that's one you were mentioning right yes that's the i mean that's the only one i think he's he's written so far and that's what this book reminds me of i've heard several people say that it's very i haven't read it yet and now it's on my to-do list but Uh um yeah 
Well, they're both excellent writers. I mean, we shouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised, right? You right. Know, that, that Mike Nesmith and Bob Dylan can turn a phrase, you know, with the best of them. But uh, I, the Dylan book is different because it focuses on three different periods. It jumps from the 60s to the 80s. And uh, this really doesn't quite do that. I mean, it does take you, you know, from the 60s. There's, there's a, some jumping back and forth. But for the most part, it's sort of linear. She sits at the wheel and... Uh... Five-inch heels and a tight red dress. With lipstick and nails to match. He slumps next to her. Got a loose black silk bow tie that dangles from his open collar. He stares blearily into his future as the rising whine of the engine overtakes him. He looks into his future and realizes where once he was the predator. Now he has become the prey, and he's running from the grand. favorite stories uh, that you learned from the book, either that you'd, uh, that were new to you or that you maybe heard him, you know, read him tell kind of in a different way. Um, Roseanne, you can start this one. Sure. Uh, Well, I'll go off what I was just saying about his mother. Yes, we all know that she invented liquid paper. I actually have just published an encyclopedia of women in American history, and she's in it because liquid paper's in it. Yay! Um, But I, the story of being robbed in the Rolls Royce really struck me as an excellent analogy, though it's a true story, of what he was trying to say about how money overshadows the real goals of a life. And because I did like it as a story of someone being raised by a single mother, because I was raised by a single mother, and the the difficulty of that relationship, that moment seemed to highlight what he learned from her and sadly admitted he did not put into use at the immediate time when he inherited the money. Mm-hmm. But he seems in retrospect now to understand that money was never the goal and money is never the symbol of success that we've allowed it to be in our society. Yeah, that's that's very true. And that's that's, you know, that was definitely one of the stories that struck me. Uh, Andrew, I think that 
the the stories that interested me the most, which was probably because they hadn't they haven't really come out before about um, periods of his life where he was literally broke. Um, yeah. And the perception of Michael Nesbitt has always been in the media anyway that he was the rich monkey. And, um, you know, usually he couldn't be bothered to join in with the others because he was too busy making lots of money. He never need, never needed the cash like everyone else did. He was always kind of on this pedestal of being rich. And I think, you know, you read the book and you suddenly see that there was several periods in his, his life where he, he was in serious financial trouble, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially in the early 70s. And uh, I don't think that's ever been talked about before. Um, so that was very interesting to me. And then the way he bounced back from that with his... When I, I knew about him being a Christian scientist, or at least following that, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I didn't know how deep he got into it at that point in the mid seventies, with actually going to have classes and pursuing yeah. the teacher Paul Seeley and really going for it. I didn't know how important that was to him at that period at all. I, I, that didn't. That was all new to me, and I knew quite a bit about him. So th- those would be really good stories. That I think resonate with me. And then the other one, I just, I just love it because I, I just love the. Um, the story near the end of the book where he's uh, in New Mexico and uh, Terry Jones is visiting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> I won't say it because, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but there's, there's a wonderful Terry Jones of Monty Python, if you didn't know, um, yeah. visiting and having a, a wonderful quip. That right. is just, it's just priceless. So that's, my, <laughs> that's probably my favourite moment in the whole book. <laughs> I also really liked the stuff that he was talking about with his spiritual journey the conversations he had with Paul Seeley and also kind of the the period before that where he was just kind of in this searching phase spiritually and sort of just learning the story of that journey. I mean, I'd picked up bits of it here and there. And and honestly, if you've read some of his earlier novels, I mean, Neptune Zamora, you can kind of get sort of a, sort of an idea of kind of where he's coming from spiritually in some ways. But this was very much more interesting and open. And then as somebody who's like, a, a you know, who tries to write, and I was really interested in sort of learning about his artistic process, how Rio came to be, and, you know, the story of Repo Man, and, and, and sort of his adventures in stretching his, his kind of creative talents in new ways. And to me, those are the moments that define it as the book about a writer or an artist, yes. if you will, going broader, finding his art. And just to be what I think is funny, to, to clarify a myth, it's true that we've always thought of Mike as the rich monkey, but in all truth, when you look at Mickey's story, Mickey was because his mother invested all his money. Mm-hmm. So he was the one who wasn't right. broke when the show was right. done. And then he went to work directing in England, and there's a marvelous one of those segments of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous that you know I have on my, yeah. my uh, fan website. But you know he's living in a mansion in England, so he was never in the depths of that. And yet we don't think of him as the rich monkey. That's very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was surprised that he was so open about his marriage to Phyllis and oh, yeah. failing her. Yes. And it's, it's interesting because we've all read other monkey books. And for example, now I can't remember the name of it. What's the Glenn A. Baker book? Uh, Monkey Mania, I think. Monkey Mania, right. If you read that book, Glenn does not seem to be a fan of Nez. And no. <laughs> right? <laughs> and what what he says in that book, I mean, he'll say something like, well, Nez is a Christian scientist and full of himself or whatever he'll say. And I had no idea the depth of his interest in that. I had oh, no my. idea how yeah. far he had gone into that and the relationship with his mother and how that, you know, all panned out. The The stuff with Phyllis... You know, in the in the Glenn A. Baker book, it's sort of casually dismissed. Well, Nez was a jerk. 
Nez in his own book says, yes, I was a jerk. And here's how I was a jerk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, I, and, and yeah. so it doesn't, it doesn't negate anything that's in those books, but it really fleshes all of that story out. We get a much clearer picture of who this guy is. Yeah. It turns him kind of from the kind of the, the cartoon version that some people I think have in his head, especially when they sort of think about his personal life and, and the mistakes, you know, he's made over the years, like all of us have. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, fortunately ours aren't, you know, shot all over the mass media, but anyway, Hearing, and I just want to say, yeah. I just want to, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Go ahead. I just want to say, he's hes very hard on himself. Yes, too. that was exactly what I was about to say, that he is just, he doesn't like go into gory detail, but what he writes is just so blunt and so honest, so brutal. He's not using any of his $15 words. He basically says, right. I screwed up. These are the ways in which I screwed up. And that's just how that happened. True. And what's interesting is I can't remember where I'd have to go double check it. But in my research for the book, I found a quote by Phyllis where she said when they uh, got the show on the air, some other woman in the production company said to her, this is either like the, the best thing that ever happened to you or the worst thing that ever happened to you because a million girls are going to throw themselves at your husband now and you may not survive this. And that stuck in her head all those years. Yeah. And then it became true. And at least in this book, what I found was beautiful, and I wonder if he did this in her memory since Phyllis died a few years ago. Mm -hmm. He needed to finally apologize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows what happened right. between the right. two of them, but I think he, I think you may be right that he, because I remember him writing some Facebook updates around the time that she passed that had sort of the similar tone to, to them. They were not as blunt as what he wrote in the book, but, um, I think he does. I've gotten the impression that he definitely does did want forgiveness for the things that he did at the time. And I certainly for his sake, I hope he got it. So, yeah. yeah. Now, I would estimate that only about 10 percent or so of the book. I mean, I didn't count it up, but maybe like 10 percent of the book talks about the monkeys. And to read the book, if you didn't know anything else, you'd think that the monkeys ended in 1969, and there are no mentions of the reunions without Nez. There are no mentions of the reunions with Nez. Was that about what you expected from the book, or did you expect him to talk about it more or less? Go for it, Ghosty. I, you know, in a perfect world, I suppose I would have liked a chapter about Davy passed away and I was surprised at how hard I was hit by that. And, you know, when we got back together and, and toured, uh, you know, I really love these guys and I may have taken them for granted or something. I think, I think everybody kind of would have liked to have read something like that, Yeah. but isn't it kind of understood? I mean, yeah, it's not like he hasn't said as much in interviews and on Facebook, uh, in his status updates about that, mm -hmm. but I suppose, yes, but that's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like the reunions would have been part of this story. Yeah, that's a, that sounds sounds very reasonable. Roseanne, what were your thoughts? Well, considering I've written an entire book about the TV show, yes. and how I find it to be deeply influential in further innovation in television, I was sad that his focus was entirely on the group. Of course, the group is what, you know, the mm -hmm. music has kept us alive. But the show has kept it alive across these years and all the reruns oh, across yeah. all the generations. So granted, he wasn't one of the creators of the show. And mm -hmm. I think 
his insecurity and not being understanding of all that business at the time in the way that, you know, other folks were kept him from even considering that. And I miss that because it would be nice to have had an inside look at what he thought, or even to have taken the time in his older age. And I know they've all done the commentary on shows, so they have rewatched them, you know, in the last 10 years or so. It would have been fun for him to be able to realize he was part of something that did innovate television, but especially because he then went on to do some television. So it seems like he has a perspective for it, and he completely ignored it. And that that was yeah. a bummer for me because I would have loved to have gotten his take on what was working in the show. Right. But, you know, he focused on the music, and I love the music too, so I guess it's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and Andrew, as a, um, you know, as a music person who wasn't particularly a Monkees fan, what did, what did you think about how much or how little he had to say about that time? I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. Um, mm -hmm. I think it, in, in terms of how many years he covered in the story, I think it was probably a fairly representative amount of space. Yeah. He gave it in the book. I think that the, um, and I think that the, 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 when he did talk about it, as being in the band at the time in the in the mid sixties is very interesting. It's it's a lot of interesting perspectives on what was happening, both within the music scene and within that group at the time. I don't think that he thinks. I, I think the reason the reunion side of it isn't mentioned is because that really wasn't part of what he thinks of as the the monkeys. The monkeys to him is that band and that TV show from that limited amount of time in the nineteen sixties. The reunions were kind of extra things that happened. They weren't something that was integral to his life at that mm -hmm. point. He jumped in, he jumped off, you know, he swam here, swam back. He didn't really, he wasn't really involved in those projects other than when you could say that, you know, him producing justice was, was more than that, but yeah. there's, a, there's a whole other story behind that. That's not come out yet. Uh -huh. um, and <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm just saying, I'm sure there is. Uh, I'm sure there is too. I'm sure there is. Cause the, yeah. Um, but I, I think that in terms of, of the TV show, that was a that was his job. Yeah. For him, he was a he was a working actor, and I think the other part of why it may not feature so much after 1970 is that, I mean, still him and Peter, if you hear him talk, they still go on and on about how they were disrespected and how they were laughed at and they mm -hmm. were ridiculed by their musical peers. Yeah. And I think they've all carried that with them. Oh, yeah. Even though, even though me sitting over here in England, I can say to him, you were always really cool with the music press over here. No one ever laughed at you over here. You were always very, very hip and legitimate. It's still something in both of their psyches is so strong that there's almost, there's almost a kind of a just avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, and think about other things. And I think that for him, you know, every time he tried to do something like the prison, it was always like Monkey Man makes prison album. Mm -hmm. And I think that right. drove, drove mm -hmm. him to distraction over the years. So then when he came to do it himself, he just focused on the bits he's never been able to talk about yeah. without being either ridiculed or, you know, over talked about. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this rather than what I want to talk about. I think that's kind of what was behind the structuring of it like that. I saw, that's my take on it. You know, what's also interesting about that is the idea that they say that. Peter and Mike say that. Nobody respected us, and the press did not. But if you saw that Laurel Canyon documentary and you read the book about the Laurel Canyon Society at the time, Peter was hanging out with Janis Joplin. Mickey was hanging out with Mama Cass. 
Eric Kaplan would come over. They were friends. Those people did respect them. Yes, partially because it was an acting thing, but also they knew their music and they didn't scoff at it in that way. And they also knew they were using backup bands like the Wrecking Crew as well. So I think it's the press that hated them much more than it was their own actual peers. Yeah, but 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 they but they constantly talk about being laughed at by the people they wanted respect from yeah. um, more than anybody. So I I think there was some sniggering in the backs of rooms. <laughs> um, and I know there was at certain concerts, and I think that even even if it didn't happen very often, it just happens once. If someone yeah. laughs at you once when you wear a certain item of clothing, for instance, if someone laughs at you at work, you're not going to wear that again, and you're definitely going <laughs> to probably be very conscious of that happening to you ever again. So maybe it didn't happen very often, but it happened enough that it burned them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and even if you go back and look at the review, I mean, Nez in the book talks about horrible reviews. Mm-hmm. Actually, the reviews were actually pretty good for a lot yeah. of his solo stuff. Yeah. But he remembers yeah. it them being slaughtered by the press. And you can you can find as many good reviews as bad reviews. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an interesting kind of you know perspective that they, they both have on that period, I yes. think. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. They have that perspective. I argue that it's wrong, but I'm not them, so obviously. Yeah, we all have our own positionality and our own way of seeing the world. And I think a lot of it comes back to what, you know, Ghosty and, and everybody was saying earlier about the same three questions getting asked over and over. I think everybody kind of has their thing that they, they like think that, okay, this thing about me is like 1% of my life. It's just, you know, this small little interesting quirk about me. But, you know, whatever it is, it's the thing that everybody, once they learn about it, they want to talk about it and they want to fixate on it. And I think most of us have that one thing that at some point we get tired of talking about it and tired of being defined by it. And for these four guys, that was their one thing. That was the only thing that, that people really cared about, about them. And I think they've all kind of had to make their, make their peace with it in different ways. But you know who you just, just spoke about as well? Mm -hmm. Um, The book that came out just before Carrie Fisher died, The Princess Diaries. She discusses exactly that and, Mm -hmm. and how she came to a peace with the fact that she will always inhabit the body of Princess Leia. It's a really good read for that that kind of attitude you're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's become the camera. We've done our movies of the mind. We can now work the camera a little bit. Our lens starts out clouded over, and we pull back and we see that it's a raindrop, a drop of water, and it falls away from us down towards the ground. And we watch from high up as it falls down into a dark, wet city street. And we just hold on the droplet for a minute, but we start to pull back and pull up. And as we pull up higher and farther away, now off to our right, we can see a waterfall. And the waterfall is falling hundreds of feet down onto the estuary of a white sand beach that's the edge of a tropical jungle. Big palm trees arching out over the oceans. So we keep pulling up and back. Now we can see all the oceans of the Earth laid out on the map. And then the map wraps itself around the globe. And we pull far enough back that we can see it is a blue orb in our solar system. Keep pulling back farther now. See, the solar system is a part of a galaxy in the universe. This is our mind's eye. And it's infinite in its reach. And it opens the cosmos to us. 
And then, when the final pullback, and we gaze in wonder, as we realize all of this has been reflected in the minute eye of a tiny butterfly that has landed on the back of our hand. This is, from Tropical Campfires, a song, Yellow Butterfly. uses kind of he's a metaphor guy and he uses a lot of different concepts to make sense of his life celebrity psychosis the high lonesome his time as a, a, the hamburger movie tycoon I, I i am totally stealing this it, it reminded me very much of a similar concept uh, anthony bourdain talks about when he talks about people who've made money in other realms coming to start restaurants and it it made me wonder if nez is a fan of tony bourdain which i can totally see by the way but <laughs> Yes, the story is very narrative, but there it also is sort of organized by themes. What did you think of sort of that thematic approach to exploring those different parts of his life? And I guess, uh, Roseanne, we can start with you. Okay, um, I'll be quick because, one, I thought the celebrity psychosis was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Partially that may be the fact that the monkeys are in more of the book than the 10% we're estimating because that psychosis came from the monkeys and yeah. it followed it through much of the rest of his life. It's like aftershocks from the, from the earthquake. Exactly. And I think people are fascinated with the way Americans treat fame. Um, and I, Andrew can speak to this, but we always think of the English as treating it better. There's a Michael Caine quote where someone asked him why he did so many bad movies as well as so many good movies. And he said, I'm an actor. They hire me. I go to work. Mm-hmm. And we seem to right. think that the English treat acting like a craft and a job, and the Americans treat it like it's just being famous, and that's all that counts, and that's why we have the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> we certainly do. We do. Whereas <laughs> I, I, I remember a story about We're the World, and it was Sting who told it. He was in both of the both the, the original Do They Know This Christmas and Here We Are the World in the States. And in England, when they did it, all the uh, performers showed up on their own, drove themselves to the place, did their part, and were done in a couple of hours. In America, each performer was given a limo ride to the studio, a $30,000 breakfast buffet was provided to them, and they were all treated like they were very important. And he said, I think the Americans' problem is they don't have royalty, so they let the actors be the royalty. Mm. But in England, Sting can never be more than Sting. He'll never be the prince. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) <laughs> i think that's your cue andrew there you go yeah no the the, the, con- the concept side of it i really like that i like the way he des- described 
the, the the was it the hamburger movie tycoon? Yes, yes. And then, and then how you know he, he saw the folly of this guy trying to to, to start right. a record company that only that only recorded hit records. Um, <laughs> yes, which was, which was brilliant in itself. And then and then of course you know ten years later uh, he has become his own uh, hamburger movie tycoon when he suddenly starts making Hollywood movies. Um, right. And and the fact that he, he he's able to to recall that and make fun of himself for becoming what he he disdained earlier is pretty cool, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the high lonesome is is one of the saddest parts of the book oh, God, to me, yes. Yes. especially if you're a, a music person and you know that that's coming from a bluegrass reference mm-hmm. um, of that that really sad folk music that comes from the mountains, yeah. based on that sense of displacement and loss. Um, I thought that was a very sad part of the book. So yeah, I think all those all those themes worked. The celebrity psychosis was very much like that thing he talked about previously, of of a personal Las Vegas when you just become a a caricature of yourself and mm-hmm. you become right. you know, so, so full of your own importance that you become a monster to everyone else. And uh, again, you know, he's honest about that, brutally yeah. honest, in fact, probably more than than any celebrity I can think of, you know, in a memoir. So um, kudos to him for that. Oh yeah. I think everybody's touched on, you know, uh, the hamburger movie tycoon, that story that Andrew mentions. I mean, that was one where I had to put the book down because I was laughing so hard. You know, the idea that just the idea that someone in their naivete would say, we'll only make hit records. It's, it's perfect. And it's like, man, you are just not cut out for this business. And then, of course, yes, Nez becomes one, Yeah, you know, later on. Yep, I know you, what you mean. That was one of two points where I laughed at the book. The other one was his telling of the fist through the wall story. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so glad yes. you mentioned that. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how that story has been recast yes. over the past several years by Nesmith? And more interesting to me are the reactions from fans to that story. Mm-hmm. You know, the the... Because Nez is always quick to say it was no palace revolt. It wasn't how yeah. it's been reported. But usually it's been reported by the other monkeys that way. Right. I mean, I mean, talk about fandom lenses or just, you know, different perspective, <laughs> you know, elephant parts for that matter. <laughs> Every right. person in that room has told that story in a different way. And it's just fascinating. That's why there are whole college departments dedicated towards studying the way that we remember and how exactly. we memorialize things in our world based on the perspective that was given the most attention. Mm-hmm. I think Nez addresses that in the, in the introduction to the book too. Yeah. Emmercord. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So he's able now to say, well, this is how I remember it now. And that was how I remembered it in 1993. Mm-hmm. So exactly. it's, a, it's a perfect way of <laughs> telling a tale yeah. and, and bypassing people say, ah, but in 1973, you said, and so he's avoided that very cleverly, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you like or dislike about Nez's writing style in this book? I thought it was very similar in some ways to his earlier books, but it also felt like it had a different tone to me. It was more more thoughtful, more introspective. A lot fewer of the $29 words. I mean, I think I only had to look up one word in the, uh, in the, in, in the whole book, but, you know, and I was just curious about your thoughts about 
how this you know was similar to or different from um some of the other things you read read from him and andrew we can start with you i was i was pleasantly surprised by the the stylistically of, of this book it reads to me it reads very conversationally mm-hmm. um and if if you actually and i did listen to it on audible yeah i haven't yet but and it, yeah if you listen to it on that it is very very easy easy on the ear it flows naturally it's very conversational and he avoids this time you know kind of like overwriting is what i'd call it um yeah where, where you where you say too much to try and to try and emphasize a point or try and illustrate it uh, with, without any need to you could just say it very simply and directly works better sometimes than trying to over elaborate and I think that the the novel he wrote before had too much over elaboration in it it was too much trying to be a novelist mm-hmm. and this time he's just sat down and I think I compare it to uh, what he talks about in the book about the night he went to the troubadour um, and finally played his own songs and, and played it in his right. own voice and it all worked and I think this is the the book equivalent of that night at the Troubadour when he just stopped trying to pretend to be anything he wasn't and just wrote from the heart and it works. And I think it's just brilliant because it does work so well. I haven't read his other books, so I really can't compare it, but I always think of Nez as sort of a great humorist in the Will Rogers tradition. And this book, you know, it certainly fits the bill. I was just struck by how funny it is, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a joy to read because of that. Because even though he he gets into some very dark territory here, yeah. th- there's always this self-effacing humor that shines through. And for me, it's just, uh, you know, I it was a quick read. I think I mentioned that to you. I mean, oh, I yeah. read this over, over two days. Because that sense of humor, that... That Nez humor is just uh, intoxicating for me. Mm-hmm. I'm a sucker. I'm a I'm a, a, a Nez groupie when it comes to his sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, okay. <laughs> Roseanne. I think it was like sitting down and having a conversation over those various topics that he chose to write about. And I agree with uh, Andrew's previous and Ghostly both saying hearing more about his take on spirituality and mm-hmm. Christian science, which is a religion that I don't know that much about. Yeah. It felt like you were gathered over a cup of coffee, enjoying yourself. I think that it's proof that he was always a good writer and the honesty comes from a place, as I think Ghosty said, only you can only reach when you've come to that age and you can look back across what you've done and want to give a message to the next generation that's of some value to them. Yeah, and I th- I think that his age definitely brings something to the story as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's present day, we're in apartment buildings full of people coming and going. And uh, they see each other every day. It's, a, it's like a communal uh, thing. It's not really a family, but they're close. They go into and out each other's apartments, and there's a deli downstairs, and are just good friends. He sees her often. Uh, sometimes he brings her a gift. And uh, she uh, sometimes will prepare dinner for both of them in her apartment. They're together a few nights a week. They are lovers. And then one night, standing over the tiny sink, drying the last of the dinner dishes, 
He starts to look at her for a long time in just silence. And then in the twinkling of an eye, something changes. So he says this to her. about Nez that we didn't know before. We learn a lot about other people in his life, from his mom and his extended family, all the way through to folks like, you know, Jack Nicholson and Douglas Adams and Johnny Cash and all, all these other folks that he's had, you know, worked with and been friends with over the years. Did anything that you learned about any of those people change your opinions about them? I don't think I've asked Andrew to go first in a while, so. Well, you would pick me on this one because... I um <laughs> I I really don't think I did learn too much about anybody else I didn't know already. Hmm. Um of the major characters, you know, the, the Jack Nicholson's, the John Lennon's, the Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix's, I didn't learn anything more than maybe because those stories have been told before. Right. Uh, I didn't learn too much about them. Um maybe that um that Jack Nicholson could be a bit of a jerk. Um but you know, mm-hmm. I think you yeah. knew that anyway. Um, you know, when when he says you, you have to call before you visit from now on, that was kind of, yes. yeah. Yeah, kind of you know, okay, okay, you're a bigger star than me, I get it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're not on TV anymore, so go away. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't very cool. Um, yeah. You know, that wasn't exactly a surprise to me either. Um, I, th- I think the stories about his family were interesting. Yeah. I, there's, there's nothing that, that I was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that, mm-hmm. that you know, John Lennon was a bit odd. I mean, there's not, <laughs> yeah. nothing like that. really wasn't anything like that. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Um, Ghosty? Well, I had the same reaction with the Nicholson story because he had spent all this time talking about how they bonded and they were, you know, two peas in a pod. And Nicholson was just his infectious sense of humor and his mm-hmm. off-kilter view. And then to have it end with... Uh, Oh yeah, uh, call me before you come over. It's our our working uh, relationship are has ended. You know, we were friends for a project, and you know now not so much. Although he does mention that he's talked to him over the years, so mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how close they are. But I, I am a major Beatles fanatic, 
and have read countless books about the Beatles. And unfortunately, I can't remember which book it's in, but I heard kind of a different story regarding his visit to the Lennon home, mm-hmm. which well, I think I was Cynthia taught Yes. It. Yeah. Didn't, didn't she say that basically they were invited for dinner and the next thing you know, they're staying for a couple of days and it's a case of when are these people getting out of here? <laughs> <laughs> Again, everybody's holding on to a different part of the elephant. <laughs> right, right. Lennon's thinking, you know, I was nice, I was polite, but come on, you know. But Michael has it where, you know, they had this wonderful time and they were so simpatico. And, mm-hmm. But I've, I've, heard, uh, I've heard a different perspective from someone else who was there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see Roseanne I don't think you've said, shared yet I think when I think about the different people he wrote about I was most fascinated by the women by Me his too. mother, by Phyllis and by the tiny mention of Nurit Wild mm-hmm. right, who we know is the mother of one of his children yeah. um, and oddly enough in the writers I interviewed for my book I interviewed Peter Meyerson and mm-hmm. later in life, Peter Meyerson married Nurit Wilde. I didn't know that. Hey, and I would love to know how she worked her way through that world and how they came to be. Meyerson partied yeah. a lot with Peter, but not so much with Mike. Mm-hmm. So somehow they were both orbiting a world where in their later life, I'm talking 50s, 60s, they ended up together before right. he passed away about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I would have loved to know more about how she blended into his world. But what he gave us of the women he knew was very interesting and yeah. just made me want to know more about how hard it was to to work in that period when women could and couldn't have a job. Yeah. His mother's an example of the perfect, I made a career because I was single and I made a lot of money and I worked. And then here's Phyllis having to watch the kids and watch the husband go away with the other younger girl. Just... Mm-hmm. I I could read a whole book about the women. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think the person that I was most fascinated to learn about was Nez's mom, um, because I've always been sort of, what little I knew of her story, I was always just so impressed with her as a woman kind of being able to, coming from that part of the world. And, you know, again, I was sort of able to, to see echoes of, uh, their story and, you know, my, my dad and his brothers and sisters and, and, and their mom, my grandma, because she was a single mom for several years after her first marriage ended and around that same time in a very similar part of the world. And to not only be able to support their family, but uh, support her family, but to become this, you know, this great entrepreneur and philanthropist. It was an amazing story and it was interesting to learn about the complexities of her as well as her son and sort of, you know, the good things about her and the challenging things about her and how the two of them kind of negotiated that relationship. Oh, yeah. And from from the standpoint of what the relationship was, but also because I have a 19-year-old son, the concept of what it was like to have been his mother and to watch her child go through that mm-hmm. craziness and fear that he's never going to settle to think that, you know, yeah. as he admitted to his being broke and all those things. And how do you, how do you navigate the, I have the money to take care of my son, but if I give him more money, he'll just lose it and never learn how to right. manage his adulthood on his own. So you have to be distant, but loving. I just, I would love to have been able to ask her how she came through watching him fumble. 
Very true. Because, I mean, you know, he really was struggling, really, even up until the time she passed or very close to it. So, exactly. you know, it, it is She a didn't little... know he was yeah. going to eventually, you know, make good. And to yeah. not know that would be well, so sad. He actually says in the book, if you if you read the last couple of chapters, I'm not sure which chapter it is, but he talks about the, the crash of 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. being financially hard too. So there's a, there's a recurring pattern throughout the book of boom and bust with him. Yeah, he's, yeah he seems very, very focused on popping the bubble about him as, you know, yeah. the rich <laughs> financial tycoon. <laughs> right. I love the idea that his mother sent, uh, you know, her business advisors down to check out his investments. It wasn't like his mother wrote him a blank check right. and said, you know, yeah. here's what you need. You know, he had to prove himself and he didn't yeah. measure up. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was incredibly strong to be able to do that. It was much easier to throw money at your kid and hope it works. Very true. And, and yeah, that's, that's one of those things that really impressed me about her. And uh, sort of as we think about the book as a whole, how did Infinite Tuesday change how you thought of Nez, I don't know that it changed my opinion about him so much as things that I sort of suspected and it had kind of been hinted at around the edges. I kind of got a fuller view of and it helped me sort of understand more of where he was coming from and kind of get a picture of the fuller arc. But I know a lot of people talking about it on the Zilch Facebook page and elsewhere sort of said that they were surprised and and, and that it sort of changed how they thought about uh, Nez in one way or another. Um, Ghosty? Well, I mean, you know, we mentioned boom or bust. That's really what changed for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reading that, thinking, oh, this was not the guy who had, you know, wealth to spare, everything went his way, every project afterwards, he was just so consumed with, uh, you know, these great financial successes that he couldn't be bothered with monkeys reunions. This was a guy who kept struggling. So that was a change, really. I mean, I didn't really know that much about the success and failure rate of his various Mm -hmm. projects. And to learn that things were not going well at a time where I thought they were going well. And I I think, and I haven't read it in a long time, but I think that book, Total Control. Yeah. Right, which is uh, much like Glenn A. Baker, someone who's not a Nez fan. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That book. And that's that tells sort of a different story about uh, mm-hmm. some of these projects. That was really all I had to go on, you know, up until that point was was total control. And I right. knew I knew to take that with a mountain of salt. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very true. Um, Roseanne? Well, as someone who had the pleasure or the privilege of seeing his farewell show at the, at the Pantages with Mickey mm-hmm. and Peter, he, remember I started this whole interview by admitting he was never my favorite. If yeah. I went down the list, it was Mickey, then Davy, then Peter, then Mike. Mm-hmm. He won me over that night because I sensed a great gratitude for the experience And I sensed that he was giving fans a gift and thanking them for the love they had given him even when he perhaps didn't want it. Mm -hmm. So he began to make me like him more then. And in reading the book and seeing how honest he was and how much he struggled to create a voice as an artist, I don't know if I'll have to change my ranking because I don't want to demote anybody (laughs) that I love, but I certainly maybe now see them all four on the same plane as opposed to having to rank anybody. Yep. Yeah, very true. 
Yeah. I think as we all get older, we become a little more April Conquest. <laughs> You're right. So that's a wonderful thing. Oh, you just pulled that out of your back pocket. How hot are you? Yeah, well, I've watched the show. What can I say? <laughs> Andrew? I think... Um... I think my, my answer is a little bit different and right. I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to come across as, as being full of myself, but I, I've been fortunate enough to, um, to, to know him since 1989. Yeah. Not, not well, you know, and we're not buddies, but I've, I've interacted with him. I've worked for him. I've, I've spent time with him. So for me, what's been really good about this book is that the, the stereotype that he's, um, and you see this from monkeys fans and, and the media in general, that he's aloof uh, he's he's too good to be getting down in the getting down and dirty with the silly monkeys projects that he's he's kind of awkward and doesn't really want to deal with people. I, I never saw that. I mean, to me, the first time I met him, he was very humble, very gracious, yeah. uh, very, very, very unassuming about himself. And so that that side that I've known for, for 30 years, it's a real pleasure to see that now other people are seeing it because he's been able to, as I said earlier, to lay it out on the line as to this is this is what I'm like, this is my story, however it's been painted before. And maybe sometimes I painted it myself mm-hmm. a little bit a little bit like that, because right. he has done. But I think that generally speaking, this is who he is. He's always been like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but that hasn't been seen by people. And I think he's finally getting the recognition he deserves for being a very decent, very kind, generous man, which is what comes across in the book. I don't think it, I don't think he's suddenly become that. I think he's been that for a long time, but maybe right. it's just becoming more apparent now. And the fact he felt able to sit down and write this book at this point, obviously he's connected with that feeling himself mm-hmm. and is able to express it in a way that is now understood by by a lot of people, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I had the chance to meet him very briefly when he was doing those um, those conversation receptions after his solo shows. I, I met him in Chicago about eh, four years ago now, and uh, I have to echo everything you've said, Andrew. Is is that he was just a a, a complete sweet gentleman and you know was was very kind to everybody in the room and 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 was very nice to me he listened to what i had to say which you know Mm -hmm. was astonishing but it it is uh, i think that is really what came through this book uh, for me was his authenticity yes perfect word Mm -hmm. yes yeah Yeah. And he's not hiding behind metaphors of Southwestern space alien earth goddesses or any of that stuff. (laughs) I love Neptune's Mora, but yeah. Uh, But he's just able to, he he feels comfortable enough to share his story for, I think in some ways, at least to average everyday fans like us and like me at least really for the first time in a, uh, our life and 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 really i i i am just i'm blown away with bio and I, i'm really grateful that he's kind of opened up to us about that overall uh would everybody here recommend it, this book to listeners oh of course certainly to listeners and i think beyond listeners that's mm-hmm. the, the i'd like to see it break through that again because it's the story of an artist it's the story yeah. of an era and it's well written so I would like it to go beyond the reputation of it's a monkey biography. Yeah, because it's, it's not. I mean, cover aside, it's not. A, you know, it's the story of an artist. You put it very well. Uh, this this isn't this isn't a prison joke. I I really did I really did listen to it while I read it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that isn't trying to be coy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was actually good because the, I, I started reading it before I had the Audible download. Yeah. And there was a certain... There was a certain melancholy tone that I was picking up through reading the chapters. But then when I heard him speaking uh, about the same stories and, and telling them in his own voice, the uh, the melancholy disappeared huh. because oh, it had a different tone completely. Wow. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend the two together um, and help sales as well, of course. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I have the Audible as well, but I haven't listened to it yet. So now I know what I'm doing for my next read through. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Yeah. Wonderful. Andrew, you you weren't dancing too while you were reading and listening, were you? For the complete. I was, and, and I was, oh, okay. Good. And <laughs> I was in the shower. The Wonderful. There you go. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh man, this let's, is. Let's good. shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Where can listeners learn more about you? And we'll go ahead and start with Roseanne. Oh, yay. Uh, I have a blog. It's RoseanneWelch.com. And I have a Facebook page dedicated to the book, which is called Why the Monkeys Matter, Teenagers Television and American Pop Culture. And I try to post little things I used in my research. So tonight I posted a piece from Mike, guest starring on the Greg Kinnear show in like 1993, where he actually uses the phrase Amarcord and he discusses his memories of monkeys. So you see that this is a man who has thought long about these ideas and finally had a place to put those ideas down and share them with everyone else. So that's Mm -hmm. where you can find me. Wonderful. Ghosty? You can catch me on WFDU-FM every Sunday afternoon, noon Eastern time. And uh, you can find me on Facebook, David Ghosty Wills. Wonderful. And Andrew? Yes, uh, I don't have a blog because um, I have nothing to sell, really. Um, <laughs> although although I, someone last week told me, this is a true story too, they told me I should have my own blog page because I do have several books available which i should sell for myself off my offer yeah yes so if i ever come back on zilch i may have one set up by then so you can all rush off and buy buy a garth brooks and eagles books well i'm gonna pick (laughs) up that garth brooks book because you know all oklahomans are required to learn as much as humanly possible about the guy and i was Uh, back in the day so (laughs) it's a good book it's a good book well wonderful i I wouldn't i don't say that about all my books but that is a good one (laughs) i'm proud of that one (laughs) (laughs) Unlike some of the others. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I'm just doing a troubadour thing. Ah, there you go. There you go. There well, you let's, go. Let's, let's not name them. That could affect sales. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Up, up oh, there. Sorry, doing... it came out. You got it out of me. You got it out of me. <laughs> Taylor Swift. <laughs> You got that one. You got me, Ghosty. You got me. I had to say it. Well, I, I mean, how how old is Taylor Swift? Uh, nineteen. No, she's... no, she's more than that now. <laughs> yeah. She's about probably twenty three now. She's always she's always going to be nineteen. Poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, poor thing. She's the richest uh, musical star right now. So I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, I sobbing all the way to the bank. I'm sure. <laughs> she, she has she has a celebrity psychosis though. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think we all do in our way. Sometimes I feel like I have to fight it. So. Now you have the Hollywood mind. You're trying to make money out of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So. And I would suggest to listeners to get out your monkey books, get out your uh, monkey mania, and get out your total control and cross-reference and have fun. Ah, 
<laughs> there's your idea and that really drives everybody's sales so there you go so okay well don't forget that you can pick up infinite tuesday and autobiographical riff and print ebook and audiobook form at any bookstore or online as well as the companion cd from our friends at rhino infinite tuesday autobiographical riffs the music and with that unless my finger has ankylosed in the last minute or so while we've oh. been talking i got it you in. worked it in and it was a bet as to whether i could work it in but but assuming my finger <laughs> going to behave. I'm going to hit the button and take it back to the studio. When the four of us first played our first concert in 1967 in Hawaii, it was the first time we ever played together as a band in front of a concert almost <coughs> like that. When we got out on stage, the crowd roared their approval and there was something different about what happened that night in my mind. We talked about it when we got off stage a little bit, the four of us and decided that there was another presence up there with us. Uh, Peter thought of it as the monkeys, and we all thought of it as you. So I went home that night, I went back to the hotel that night, and I wrote a song about it. It uh, didn't make it into the early monkeys albums, it made it into the later albums, and uh, it wasn't exactly the way I had hoped it would come out in the way it was arranged. So what I'd like to do is play you that song now, the way I originally wrote it, in its original arrangement. It cannot be. 
That conversation was such a treat. I really enjoyed it. And I'm so grateful to Roseanne and Ghosty and Andrew for taking the time to read the book and be thoughtful about the book, even though, you know, there were varying levels of Nez fandom in the conversation. But I think everybody kind of came away with a better understanding of Nez, both from the book and from our conversation. Congratulations. It was a great panel. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm really curious because if I'd been able to squish like a fifth chair into the studio, you totally would have been that chair. <laughs> so I'm kind of really curious what you thought of Infinite Tuesday. Well, oh, God. I I think my first takeaway is that it's not necessarily the book that the general public was hoping to read. Mm-hmm. But it's exactly the book that Nez wanted to write. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very personal memoir. It's a, a very emotional memoir, and it's a very confessional memoir. Uh-huh. The only the only person he dishes dirt on is himself. Yeah, it's not a it's not a tell all. He's not you know revealing the dirty underworld secrets. I mean you know he's he's really sort of you know getting a load off his own shoulders and uh-huh. off his own conscience. It felt like yeah. He remembers many important people with great fondness, and he heaps generous praise on many of them, Mm -hmm. but he barely mentions the three people that most casual Monkees fans would be most curious about. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not necessarily the book the general public was hoping for. Personally, I'm not a big Nez head. Right. My my interests are grounded in the Monkees as a TV show, as everybody knows. Mm -hmm. From reading Infinite Tuesday... I'm not even sure you could tell that Ness had ever been in any television show before television parts. <laughs> there's there's an early section of the book where, where he talks about his experiences as a monkey, but it's all focused on the music, mm-hmm. the recordings, the concerts, and then the movie Head. He yeah. does talk about making Head, but it's as if the television show didn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I'd go quite that far because it seems like there were a few references to to going to the set and it being like a job, but there certainly was next to nothing. Yeah, it's it, a couple of passing references at most. Yeah, and that yeah. tells me something very interesting about Mister Nesmith. Mm-hmm. I don't. 
I don't think he actually respects or likes that television show. Huh. And I've sort of suspected that before from something I heard him say on the uh-huh. um, one of the commentary tracks on the DVD. Huh where he says that it's basically a show that would appeal to nine-year-olds. Unfortunately, there's always new nine-year-olds coming up to, to discover the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he, there are things that he talks about at great depth and there are things that he doesn't talk about at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, if that the reason that certain things were left out was because he just doesn't have any, respect for them or desire to bring them to people's attention mm-hmm. yeah i could be i could be wrong yeah i think there are things he doesn't talk about and i think that there are a variety of reasons i think some he talks about because you know he has i really i think he talks about the things that he wants to talk about but i think that there are various reasons that he doesn't want to talk about particular things but yeah, it's an interesting book, and we really highly recommend that any listener to Zilch and anybody who's just interested in like music history should give this a listen because it's just, you know, we call it in there the story of an artist, and it really is the story of an artist. And anybody who would be interested in that kind of thing will find this book interesting and certainly well written because, you know, Michael Nesmith wrote it and he's quite the author. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, I think it's time to bring this episode of Zilch to a close. Keep your ears to the ground and your eyes on your podcast feed. We'll be, we've got some really cool things coming up. We've already talked uh, uh, about. Hang on a second, Sarah. Yeah. I'm just going to say, let's have them keep their eyes to the ground and their ears on the podcast feed. Okay. Cool. <laughs> keep your eyes on the ground. <laughs> that probably makes more sense. And I hear I was worried we wouldn't have a blooper this week. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'll leave that in. <laughs> Well, keep your eyes on the ground and your ears on the podcast feed because we've got some really cool things coming. I happen to know that Ken is just about ready to drop the two-part album discussion of the birds, the bees, and the monkeys. And oh man, I can't wait for that. I I, I am really dying of curiosity to see what they think of writing wrongs. So yeah, it's 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 going to be an exciting one. And then we've got some other things that are kind of coming down the road as well. And it's just a really cool time to be a zilch podcaster and to be a zilch listener because you know a lot of things that kind of got put on the back burner during the year of the monkeys and we are not complaining we are not complaining that 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 you know some things got a little postponed but we're trying to make up for lost time now so expect more album discussions more color cast commentaries and we're just going to keep it coming for as long as as we can because it seems like you know 51 years on there's still plenty of stuff to talk about with the monkeys so stay tuned right here and we will catch you guys next time on zilch a monkey's podcast bye bye and i'm not gonna make you sing thank you you're welcome you're welcome (laughs) i wish i planned that and that's our show zilch is an online non-profit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the Monkees or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Burke. 
If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs> Don't now. Now really, everybody cool it, because I won't be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? Let's go again. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I didn't mean that I I wasn't interrupting you in the sense of you're wrong, stop, we have to do it over again. I really was oh, trying to make okay. a joke. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. See, you're just that good an actress, girl. I'm sorry. I, I, I think really I can was, I think I can patch it together. <laughs> I can patch that together or I'll just throw it in the blooper and it'll be a meta blooper and it'll be hilarious. So...